Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. Paul Cezanne, 1839 to 1906, was perhaps more knowledgeable about the ancient world, its art, history, languages, and literature than any other late 19th century painter. His understanding of the antiquity of Provence, where he lived most of his life in contact with its storied places and their layered histories, was particularly deep, encompassing its geological formation and millennia of inhabitation from the Paleolithic to the Roman period. In this lecture, recorded on August 2, 2015, at the National Gallery of Art, Fayacazi traces Cezanne's involvement with this world, from his own experiences in X and its environs to his decades-long study of classical art, architecture, and literature at Collège Bourbon, at the Free Drawing School attached to the Musée d'Aix, now the Musée Granet, and at the Musée du Louvre. On the screen, um, before my talk, you saw in flipping over 41 images um, from one of Cezanne's sketchbooks. This sketchbook is in the National Gallery of Art collection, a gift of Paul Mellon in honor of our 50th anniversary. Cezanne used that sketchbook for decades, between circa 1875 and 1890. My talk today will not address the full sketchbook, and it will concentrate on three of the drawings in the sketchbook, all of them copies Cezanne made in the Louvre, all of them of ancient Greek marbles. As we flip through, you saw portraits of his son Paul, portraits of his wife, landscape sketches, notes, addresses, etc. And that is typical of all of his sketchbooks. And this is a subject I'll return to in a moment. The three sketches I will discuss more in depth are part of the evidence for my talk, Cezanne and Antiquity. I'm going to try to convince you today that Cezanne's connection to Greek culture, to Roman culture, and to the indigenous landscape and cultures of Provence were deeply important to him and deeply important to his art, and that his oeuvre, his work, is much better understood when we view it through the lens of antiquity. Many scholars have looked at aspects of his Mediterranean roots, his schooling, his training, and his relationship to Provence and to the past, but perhaps not with the same viewpoint that I bring. Today's talk, what you'll hear is a work in progress, an update of my current research and thinking about Cezanne and antiquity. So I am serious when I say I welcome your comments. Now back to the sketchbook. Why did I begin my lecture with it? First of all, it's one of the great treasures of the National Gallery's collections and only one of 18, possibly 19, surviving sketchbooks by the artist. The reason why we don't know the difference between 18 and 19, it's, that's not a problem, but is that 11 of them, 11 of them have been taken apart. In such, some cases, such as the two wonderful sketchbooks in Philadelphia, the sketchbooks were dismounted but kept together and all the sheets preserved separately. In other cases, the sketchbooks have been broken apart and dispersed. Three of the best sketchbooks, three examples of the best sketchbooks of all that give you a sense of Cezanne over his lifetime are in the United States. Two in Philadelphia, one in Chicago, and then ours. Of the seven that are intact, one is very early, one is minor, and one is very incomplete. So that brings the number of really important ones even smaller. About the sketchbooks, Ted Reff, the, the Cezanne and modernist scholar, has given us the most succinct reason why we should pay attention to the sketchbooks, and I'm going to quote from him now. Cezanne's sketchbooks were the most private means of expression this most private of painters used. The smallest, the most informal, the least demanding. They were small enough to sit in a pocket. They could be carried anywhere and used at any time to record a fleeting observation or to seize again a recurrent dream. In them, Cezanne could put down his first vision of a pictorial idea or explore it through a series of studies. 
He could work out a composition fully or barely begin it. He could turn the page and begin again. He could list the colors he wanted to buy, the books he wanted to read, or the addresses he was given. He even kept his young son occupied by allowing him to draw in it. And though his notes in them were restricted to practical matters, his sketchbooks were indeed his journals. If we read them perceptively, they real, reveal as fully in a visual as they could in a verbal form the whole span of his emotions from the most exalted to the most sober. Alongside his plans for ambitious paintings and copies after grandiose works by Rubens and Puget, we find these sweet portraits of his son asleep or drawing, very simple and tender in feeling, and patient studies of a branch of foliage and flower, a few kitchen utensils, a hat, or a single glass. They also bring us closer to his process, even closer than do his watercolors and paintings. For in the sketchbook, we can follow the evolution of a single idea, the pose of a certain figure, including that of an antiquity, and we see him tracing and evolving. We can see him as he copies something, and then we can see how he uses that as a motif or a form. We can watch that transformation sometimes stroke by stroke. That's the end of quote. I've been very privileged to look at a number of his sketchbooks in the company of curators and scholars, and I'd like to thank the National Gallery's curators, present and past, for the opportunity to learn. I'd especially like to thank Ruth Fine for, hours, for our hours together in Philadelphia. To give you some of the idea of the scale of the notebook, here is my colleague with Greg Jackman, associate curator of Old Master Prints and Drawings, holding it, turned to two pages with drawings of the artist's son, and then this view shows the inside with all of his notes and where, with the mini spatula, Greg has lifted up the place where the pencil might be kept. And I want to thank Greg for agreeing to be photographed at the last moment. <laughs> the last one I show you with my fingers um, at the edges is showing you when he would put it on the table and draw it on the table. So you've seen it up, sideways, and all the way around. And now the cover once again, which in a way is a kind of modern work of art. I'll return to the sketchbook again. And I'm, but I'm now going to take you to a map. Someone once said that anybody who works in ancient art cannot start an, um, a lecture without a quote um, from an ancient author or with a map. As some of you may know, my primary field is ancient art and archaeology, and most of my scholarly work has been on the art and culture of Greece and pre-Roman Italy, but also on Rome. However, I was trained throughout my undergraduate education and my graduate education and my postdoctoral education as an art history all-rounder. I also taught the whole history of art for many years. I taught even a course that was called From the Paleolithic to the Present. And if you missed a class, you missed at least a century <laughs> or several. But very importantly, I loved contemporary art. I love modern art. And the Paul Cezanne that I learned in classes from very great professors was the father of modern art, perhaps the fulcrum figure between the art of the past and that of the future. And it has long been said that no painter of our time, no living artist or no living painter can proceed without knowing something about Cezanne. Back to me. Over time, and because of my specialization, I've become much more aware of just how deeply rooted Cezanne was with the ancient past, with the classical past, and especially to the ancient art and culture of his home region, the Pays d'Aix. Seeing Aix-en-Provence and the region's landscape through Cezanne's eyes, through his art, 
learning more of the pop popular culture of his time, and by walking the land, following in Cezanne's footsteps, which you can do if you go to Aix-en-Provence. Um, the tourist agency has maps of in the steppes of Provence. You can go in a bus and a car, and you can actually walk and see what he did. Perhaps I, with my background in archaeology, looked down a lot more than others, um, looking for archaeological evidence, but the, um, the whole picture is there. This talk, of course, is aided not only with curators and scholars today, but with researchers of the past, publications, and exhibitions. I have many scholarly debts. Foremost among my debts are to the co-curators of the <coughs> exhibition Cézanne en Provence, which celebrated the centenary of Cézanne's death. He died in 1906. The show opened in January 2006, and then it opened again in Aix at the Musée Granet that summer. The co-curators, Denis Coutagne and the late Philip Conisby, set out to enrich our understanding of the deep connection between artist and place. And they saw the show as a chance to underline the importance of the landscape, the people, the life of the region in the artist's development from his beginnings until his last days, three days before he died. Multiple, paint, multiple views of the same site, multiple paintings of particular motifs substantiated their thesis. Theirs was not to take away from how important Paris to, is to every Frenchman or Frenchwoman, and it was not to dispute that Paris was not an, such an important center for him, but it was to go back to, say, uh, to Provence to understand how he reacted to a unique um, geography, a unique ecosystem. Work on the Cézanne and Provence show commenced in 2001. And that's not unusual for the kind of exhibitions we do here at the National Gallery, at least five years from serious research until opening. So if you go upstairs and see the Caillebotte exhibition or Uteval, you can be sure that that is five years in the making of such a complex kind of show. During the lead-up years, between 2001 and when the catalog went to bed, as they say, in 2005, many gallery staff and fellows had the chance to share in the research and to delve into the subject more deeply. I was one. One of the first things that intrigued me, being a student of ancient art, were his drawings after the ancient marbles in the Louvre. And that is what led me first to the sketchbook, to really understand how those drawings were mixed up with other things. Next, I wanted to know about his schooling. Exactly what did he study at school, especially as he went to a lycée, the Collège Bourbon, which would have had a classical curriculum? And then at the art school in Aix, what did he study? When did he see things? What did he see? And then, after spending time in Provence and talking to ethnologists and folklorists, as well as reading travelers' books of the 19th century, by the way, many of them, of women who went there and wrote home um, popular books for your travel in Provence, I began to get a sense of the living, popular traditions of, of old Provence. Among the questions I first asked were why, as a mature artist, was he still frequenting the Louvre, sketching ancient marbles, mainly Greek works or Roman copies of Greek works, when he had done the same thing as a student? This was normally the curriculum of a student. Why was he doing it right up until the end of his life? And what did he copy at home, and how do those relate to what he copied at the Louvre? And for his, uh, his education at the Collège Bourbon, how might this have developed his cerebral development, his points of view, his friendships, of course, then his art? Now, some of you may know that one of his greatest friends at school was the author Emile Zola. They not only spent lovely days larking about the countryside and dipping into the river Arc, going up to the dam. His father improved the old Roman dam, and then it became known, as you go there today, it's the Zola Dam. But they sat next to each other or were in the same classes in Greek and Latin. And they continued this friendship enriched by ancient literature and by their correspondence. But what did he know of the ancient ruins and of the famous battle sites, both from school 
and from popular traditions. Ultimately, finding answers to these and related questions led to a lecture I presented in 2013 in Budapest on the occasion of another extraordinary exhibition, this one more up my alley, Cezanne in the Past, Tradition and Creativity. But it looked at everything that Cezanne looked at. And the lecture I gave was specifically about Cezanne in the Louvre. My working conclusion then, and as I've developed it, is that Cezanne's perspectives were formed by his classical training, the physical world he grew up in, the geography, the geology, the archaeology, and that his modernity is perhaps more than almost any other 19th century artist deeply rooted in the region and in that past. He knew a lot about the classical world, perhaps so more though so than any other late 19th or early 20th century painter, Basta. And for a non-specialist, he had a good knowledge of geography and the geology of the Paedex. His copying of ancient sculptures was a lifelong habit, one that gave him forms and poses and essential grammar for representing the human body. Now, just a note about my approach and how it fits with some current methodologies in Francophone literature and in um, views of culture today. I owe this to the young scholar Hadley Souter. Cézanne, we would say, had a diction démocratique. That is, his way of speaking was democratic. He spoke of the time, not in a high French, as he might have learned at school. He privileged the language of le peuple, and his works are best understood when approached by a method that is um, scholars called socio-lecture that is looking, reading his works within the larger sociology, reading with an aim to explore the sociality of his style and subjects. He is of his time in such a reading, like Zola, both artiste and ouvrier, or worker, that is, artist and worker. Now on the screen, I show you a bit of Provence um, I do not work for the tourist agency, but you will see by the end of the lecture, you just want to go there. Um, what you're looking at here is on, if you're in the city of Aix, and you go behind the Mont Saint-Victoire, you are in a place which is little inhabited, and right up this road at the end, in the escarpment, is a cave which is of, neo of um, Mesolithic date, so 10,000 years old. He, was taken there by a friend of his. Cezanne had inculcated a deep understanding of this wonderful antiquity of Provence. He saw firsthand the vestiges of prehistory with this friend, Antoine Fortuné Marion, who became the foremost natural scientist of Provence. Marion explained to him by drawing him a chart of the, the strata of geology and took him to see this cave. I'm showing you now something, a page from a book. This is kind of nerdy, but I know you're going to like it. <laughs> this is a volume, the Congrès scientifique de France, um, the 33rd session. It was printed in 1867. I was looking online because I knew Cézanne knew Marion, and I knew that Marion had published this very famous article after he'd given this speech in 66. It was published in this volume, and that is First Observations on the Antiquity of Man in the Area Called the Bouche de Rome. Well, I was looking for it. Next thing popped up, do you want to buy this book? And next thing I knew, I sort of pressed yes, and $48 later, <laughs> including shipping, I now own this book. And it has in it not only this article, but it has a beautiful plate. This is the plate with the finds from the cave. So there is a part of the cranium right above the um, nose and some of the various working tools from that area. Moving on, through the early history of the Paidex, as an educated Provençal, Cézanne knew that an ancient people had um, lived there. Now, this is from uh, circa 10,000 BC, but at some point, 
an ancient people called the Ligurians inhabited the region from about 2000 BC, and then later they amalgamated with, which that's a nice word, um, or fought with and got together with the Celts from about 900 BC. So you see we're moving rather swiftly. And of the evidence of the Celto-Ligurian people, there were lots of ruins. Um, because at nearby Entremont, which is very close to Aix-en-Provence, was the former opinum of the Celtic Ligurian Confederation. And some of the things that were found that were not destroyed include this incredible thing, which was in the Musée d'Aix, or it was called Musée Granet, when Cézanne was a student. It's there now. These are five decapitated heads piled one atop the other. There are also individual decapitated heads. And for those of you who know the work of Cézanne, you might see that I'd like to draw a link between this oldest indigenous art of the region. Today, oh, here goes the tourist guide again. Now, here we are looking at what on the map would be the Bay of Marseille today. But not in 600 BC. This was Greece, because the Phocaean Greeks had um, made all around this area with today's Marseille as their trading um, depot, if you could say, um, their center. This was Greece. And in fact, not far from here, at a place called Lestac, Cezanne's mother had a house, and Cezanne spent a lot of time there. Imagine with what he knew was underneath his footstep. Now I'm, we're moving right along. Skip the Greeks. Now we're going on to the Romans. And this map shows you Roman, uh, the provinces and dioceses of the Roman Empire and after the death of um, the Theodosius I in circa 400 AD. And if you notice, down here at the bottom, and that is the ancient name, the Roman name for X. How important was the relationship of the Greeks to what we know of as Provence? How important were the Romans? Well, first of all, not only being a Greek scholar a little bit, I'd like to make a plug because when we think of that distinctive landscape of the olives, for example, or of wine. Despite the existence in Gaul of wild vines, these indigenous vines were not cultivated. It was the Greeks who brought the, newly, the, the new knowledge of viniculture and also of olives. And only with Greek colonization was wine cultivation really developed in what has been called Gaul. Cézanne was particularly well acquainted with Provence's Latin chapter. Romans had dominated the region by the first century BC, and Provincia Nostra became the first province of Rome outside of Italy. It was called Provence, thus Provence. It's like the first state would be called state. <laughs> In X, Eque Sextiae Saloviorium, the capital of the Provincia Nostra, were to be found celebrated relics of its Roman past. Now, this view is of Roman X. That is what it looked like, pretty much what the center of old X is. And in the background is the Mont Saint-Vitoire, Montagne Saint-Vitoire. Although not Arles, Orange, or Nîmes, X had its share of ruins, among them remnants of Roman baths and city walls. The slide I'm showing you is taken from a press um, visit to an exhibition that opened a year ago, which was called Ex Antique. On the wall is a typical floor found in one of the Roman houses, a better Roman house. And in the case are a selection of the pottery um, used in the houses in Aix-en-Provence. And look at the range of colors. It's the range of the soils um, of the region. And here is a, a fragment. It's actually only about this big. But I thought you'd like, too, that the color, the palette, is the same. Cézanne's um, acquaintanceship with Provence's Latin chapter um, goes also to what he could find in that municipal museum. Now, not only the dramatic Celto-Ligurian heads, but stonework and reliefs and inscriptions and bronzes and pottery. And now I'll just talk a little bit about his formal education. He would be in class. His education was steeped in the classical tradition. 
and he won prizes. Cezanne's mastery of golden and silver age Latin is documented from these prizes, his correspondence, and by biographers. Don't forget, too, that he would have studied very good French, high French. What you're looking at is the theater at X, part of which was known in his lifetime, and this is a photograph of a bit of clearing up of the excavation. So he would leave his Latin class, and he would walk by what was the Roman Forum, or he would walk by the Roman walls. He earned prizes, very good prizes, for Latin and Greek translation, for general grammar. And then he continued with recognition until he graduated for Greek composition, Latin composition, Latin verse, Latin narration, and conversation, which meant he would be thrown a topic and he could respond poetically in the style of Cicero or Horace or Virgil in conversation. Over their years, well, the education was universal in France. In fact, you can still find that deep structure in France. But it's that he won prizes in it that I think we should remember, and that we have evidence of this deep inculcation if we think about cerebral development as we do today in the brain. Over the years at school, Cezanne and Zola wrestled with Livy, Cicero, Horace, Ovid, Lucretius, and Virgil. Zola would call the city X the Roman, and here you see the walls of X. Cezanne's fluency in Latin and his love of Virgil is in evidence throughout his life, not just post-school. More than one person recounts him in front of nature reciting Virgil. He makes allusion to Horace's odes throughout his life, and you can see him in his letters making reference. He kept now, as you may, of course, you're completely up to date with Horace um, and Augustus. But anyway, Horace, who wrote odes and wanted to be out in uh, countryside, he kept his distance. He was invited to come to the capital. Um, he, um, he, in order to continue working on his project patiently, he wrote, I am gathering from nature like the bees a Manitian bee. Cezanne knew his Horace, and a number of witnesses testify to his quoting Horace by the yard as well. So, that music doesn't quite go with the lecture, but... Uh. Okay, and he quotes from um, Horace's ode about the Manitian bee. And in a letter um, to a young friend at the very end of his life, he makes reference to his gathering slowly and carefully. And for someone in the classics would know he was making allusion to Horace, who stayed away from the capital, who did his work gathering. Here you are. This is a, um, a bit of the Roman baths. I am not selling the hotel, but apparently it's quite good. This is a piece of the wall and the ancient baths in Rome, um, in, in Aix-en-Provence, which gave it its name. And now you are inside the, the Cathedral of Saint-Sauveur. These are Roman columns dragged there in the 5th century AD from another building, and this is the baptistry. So the baptistry is 5th century AD, and the columns are much earlier from some major building. When Zola and Cezanne would write to each other, Zola would address him as Carus Cezanimus. <laughs> Cezanne might write one of his, uh, um, might uh, end one of his letters, Paulus Cezaninus. He also might call himself Paulus Aqua Sixteen, making fun of the city. This says a lot about their friendship and their education. This photograph is an old photograph, and what it shows you is what might happen, and that is somebody wanted to expand their vineyard and came upon Roman ruins, and um, it's now fenced off for an excavation. This is from the early part of the 20th century. And this slide um, is of... Um, we are looking here, sorry, I stapled it together. The Chateau Noir. 
This is where he had a studio, and I was lucky enough to go. This is private land, still the Chateau Noir. You can go by, if you are leaving Aix and driving to Tolonay, the road below is called the Route de Tolonay, and it has been preserved, so you have the real Cezanne feeling. So the land, um, uh, the land to the left of the road belongs to a private family, and they were kind enough to Cezanne scholars to let us go there. Cezanne had his um, studio in here, and he expanded the studio and improved the bathroom. But why I'm showing you is not the bathroom. I'm showing you here because walking up, so I want you to take steps. You're going to leave his house, come down a walk, and then you're going to walk up this bank, this escarpment that goes up over here. At the top of the escarpment is the entrance into the Bibimus quarries, where he painted a lot. But on the way is a Mesolithic cave, which Cezanne knew, the owners tell us. And this view, we've looked at Lestac in a modern photograph. This is Cezanne's painting of it. He lived for short periods, as I said. And um, this was a place, when somebody saw one of the, his paintings of this, a critic said, friend critic said, it reminds me of the playing cards of Provence. And I will show you some uh, slides of a, a deck of the tarot cards, they're called the Tarot de Marseille, um, which have the colors because the friend points out it has such basic colors, it's built up like a tarot card with red and blue. All of Cezanne's addresses were someplace that had a historical um, grounding. Now, the photograph that I show you here, looming over all, and you saw it in that first sketch, this is the Montagne Sainte-Victoire. It had never-ending interest for Cezanne. In one decade, he painted it 60 times, and he was not a fast <clears throat> painter. Now, this mountain was originally called the Montagne de la Victoire, that is, the Mountain of Victory. It became known by Christians in the Middle Ages as Sainte Venture. In the 13th century, a chapel was constructed at the summit, and it was in the 17th century that the mountain gained its current name, which is the Montagne Sainte Victoire. Many people have asked, I don't know this saint, Sainte Victoire. Well, here's the story. For the Romans, there was a great battle at a place called, um, um, it's called today in history books, the Battle of Aqua Sextiae. And it was one of the critical battles that saved Rome from invasion. After a string of Roman defeats, the Romans under Gaius Marius, who then became consul for the sixth time, he finally defeated the Teutones and Ambrons, who were virtually wiped out with 90,000 killed and 20,000 taken captive, including large numbers of women and children. I'm showing you the site of the battle. This is a place called Pourrières, which is a um, corrupted version of um, Campo Putridi, the land of putrid bodies. <laughs> it is always said that the land, that the soil is, was so red here because of the blood of the 90,000 who were defeated. Sainte Victoire was um, age old by the 19th century, and the stories were always known. To have saved Rome was very much in the consciousness if you were Provençal. It happened here that Rome was saved. The name Marius lived on, so much so that Marius was one of the most popular of Provençal male names right up through the beginning of the 20th century, alongside all of the Christian names such as Paul. I leave on um, the screen the Mont Saint-Victoire, but now turn to Cézanne's sketches from ancient marbles. Cézanne's ancient long study of them in the Louvre began when he was a student in Aix. He attended something there which was public. It was called the École Spéciale et Gratuite de dessin de la ville d'Aix, that is, the Free Municipal School of Drawing. He started to go there when he was 18, in 1857, and he went there off and on through 1862. In fact, he went to Paris, he came back in 61, and he continued to go there while he was going to law school and during the period of his employment at his father's bank. 
Someone asked me, a lawyer in the last session, oh, he didn't study enough at law school? Law, first year of law school is really hard. Is that, was, he going to law, was he going to the drawing school so much? Is that why he left? I have no answer to that. He really wasn't happy with the law. He was complimented with it. Um, he began to work in his father's bank, and he began to be serious about being an artist. Some of my study, as I said, has been to look more closely at curricula at his school, the Collège Bourbon, and also here at the Free Drawing School. And where is there evidence that I've found? Well, many friends have helped me and scholars, but in the museum, in the city archival documents, in museum inventories, in Cezanne's correspondence, recollections, and from his, ancient, um, his own works. Now, this is the earliest known drawing by Cezanne after a nude figure, and it's after a plaster cast. We know that what the curriculum was at the school. These classes were followed year or more in drawing plaster cast and then working from live models, male only. In drawing cast and live models, strict rules governed the size, scale, degree of shading, and overall effect. Now, why drawing from cast when you had original marbles? It was believed since the 17th century, and it's still a belief in some art schools today that plaster casts offer better instruction than marbles. They weren't dirty. They weren't translucent. They weren't broken. It was a flat surface. And that it was easier to delineate form, understand it. So by drawing classical models, student would, uh, students would un come to understand beauty. Now, Bernini in the 17th century in Paris writes a letter as like, more or less, not exactly complimenting all the artists who were there. And he writes, the students in Paris need to study plaster cast. And he says, nature is almost always feeble and ugly. If the, nature, if the artist only followed nature, then he would never be able to create something truly beautiful and great. And that is one of the reasons behind the training at the school it was this mixture of beauty and nature. And throughout the 18th and 19th centuries, it was believed that cast allowed the aesthetic qualities of a statue to be more clearly recognized than does the original itself. White plaster seen under even light makes it easier to judge pure form. I'm not sure everybody would agree with that, but that was the prevailing thought. This is called, in a book which was put together in 1973 by a man called Adrian Chapuis, um, a figure study after the antique. Now, I want to tell you about this book. It is by um, Adrien Chapuis, and it was 1873, 1973, 1973, and it was a catalogue raisonné, that is, um, a recent catalogue of all of the known drawings of Cézanne. Mr. Chapuis owned some, but he did his best to collect them, to find out what they are, and to bring the scholarship to a date. We all start with Adrien Chapuis' book, even when new things come on the market. He was a wonderful scholar. Museums very often do catalog resume, trying to do all the paintings of Cezanne or all the works of an artist. The more you understand, the more you understand. Well, I looked at this and I thought, I think I know what that is. Um, it's sort of my job. And a little detective work shows this to be after a post-Praxitalian Aphrodite type. I can't, I think it's pretty close. The one on the left is in the British Museum from an ancient collection, that's for the British Museum. I mean, it was in, in England, then came to the British Museum. It's been in England at least 300 years, and casts were made of it. So possibly, you see the angle is different. It possibly could be that with the left arm broken off. Um, what was Aphrodite doing? She was actually tying her sa sandal kind of very awkwardly. That was what the ancient sculpture was. Um, it would have been understood as Praxitalian. What does that mean? It's like saying, like Michelangelo, in the case after the great sculptor Praxiteles, whose name lived on from antiquity for the Renaissance and later. The townly Aphrodite, or this type, the Praxitalian types, um, were the best known until the Venus de Milo um, came to light in 1821. I'm showing you another one. This is a really tiny drawing from a sheet. Very exciting, however. Um, it's a bit dark, um, but the more I looked at it, the more it made me think of something, and I went back and looked at my grandmother's old books, and in fact, her school Latin texts and history books, and there must be a French equivalent of it, I think. Um, here is a screenshot from Charlotte Yonga's 1880 book, 
Young Folk's History of Rome, and it has an image of Gaius Marius. Now, what I've done is take, this is a, maybe my, there, there we are. You're looking on the right. On the right is an old engraving. I'm still looking for the source of it, and that is of a Roman stamp into an amphora handle. And this is also, can't find the source of it yet, um, a drawing after a, supposedly a coin. Now I've put them all together, and you can see why I might think, with his knowledge of ancient history, that Cezanne found some image that he's copying and that the figure on the right may be um, Marius. Back to the sketchbook. Now, we're going to look at Cezanne copying the Louvre. Since Cezanne seems to have used his notebooks over long periods of time, the dating of his drawings is quite complicated. What one Cezanne scholar um, said to me was this. I imagine that he had a basket by the door, and as he was going out, he put one in one pocket and one in another, that when he was going back and forth between X and Paris, he might take one, that there are the, just a few, the very early one, another incomplete one, but that they were always around. This one, with its paint on it, gray and white and various stains, um, says something about the longevity of its use. We can get some sense of how he used them, the turning around, and one way to show you of how he might have used it, and there's the sketch of an ancient sculpture. You see, he must be holding it something like that, is this is a little image from a book um, from the 1840s, a book called Les Français Peintes par eux-mêmes, Frenchmen Painting Themselves, which has an illustration here. This is um, for volume two of the uh, four volumes. On the right, a man sketching, and a man on the left thinking hard, thinking how to represent themselves. Cezanne must have stood in a similar pose for making a drawing like the one. Well, we went ahead. Okay, now I'm gonna change my green glasses to my red glasses. See, whoops. So I look like the picture. They're a little strong, can I take them off now? Um, this is me in our um, study room at the National Gallery holding the book and trying to get a sense of how, in particular, that drawing, he used it. I'm now going to say something about our study rooms. We have two here at the National Gallery, and they're open to the public by appointment. The, for European art, it's in the East Building, and for American art, it's in the West Building. They are, you can go online, and they are open from 10 to 12 and 2 to 4. You can go by yourself, or you can go as a group. And I'm organizing a couple of visits for the Cezanne um, uh, sketchbook because we've had a lot of requests for it. But here I am, so I am there with the sketchbook. Now, Cezanne at the Louvre. When he came to the Louvre, this is um, a, a bit of a sepia view from a, this is a stereos, half of a stereoscopic um, image. That is how it looked, sort of in neat lines. And this is in the Salle des Cariatides, um, which dates back to the 16th century, with wonderful light coming in for the right. So this is, a, this is the way it would have looked when Cezanne was young, like this. And the next slide um, is more gray and gives you um, a sense of that. I'm going to turn, then you saw the cover of a book, so I'll talk about that, that book. Now, museum catalogs. I'm a museum person, so I'm really keen on when somebody does something brilliant. Mr. Froner, uh, Willem Froner, in 1869, he published this remarkable catalog of the sculpture in the Louvre. It was not just a good sculpture from the Louvre. It was one of the best catalogs of um, sculpture or art in the 19th century. It's so complete. The text is extensive, and this book, which the first edition came in 1869, the fourth edition in 1878, we don't know if Cezanne ever looked in it. I imagine he might have. That's me. Um, but it gives us an absolute knowledge of where everything was, how you got to it, and from this we can tell what Cezanne, where he stood, and what, when he drew it, why he might have driven it, drawn it. Now this is a contemporary slide, and we're looking in that same room, and this 
if, as how much more it would have looked in Cezanne's time, a forest of white marbles. And that made me think of this. This is called um, Bather's Small Plate from 1896. And it's not that it's a direct copy, but rather the sense of going into a space with white marbles. And here with special light on it is one particular. Now, when Cezanne drew, he chose only a few drawings. One of the things that he would do was to draw those parts or those angles that interested him. And it's not necessarily what would have been, at that time, the scholar's point of view. The provenance, that is, to whom did a sculpture belong before it came to Louvre, was very important. With exception of three pieces of the um, more than 20 that he drew, they all had what we call noble provenances. They had belonged to Versailles. They had been brought early to France, or they had come from the Borghese collection in Rome. The three exceptions are the Venus de Milo, which, as I said, came in 1821, um, and a couple of others. We are looking now at something, the, a sculpture which is called the Ares Borghese, Mars, or Ares, in the Borghese collection. It's thought to date by scholars, to, even today, to the late fifth century, and it's actually attributed to someone called Achaemenes, not a household word, but one of the top 25. We consider, in the study of Greek sculpture, it to be one of the pivotal works of this period. And it is a sculpture that inspired Cezanne and would inspire you to walk around the sculpture. He goes a long way around it and chooses views. But what's interesting, even if I can't show you the page, when he's drawing, he tends to look at. And that's what he's looking at. He doesn't look at, down, and bottom. And this is a very well-preserved sculpture, but he doesn't draw later restorations or repairs. He concentrates. It's as if he is a very good archaeologist. And you see him walking around it. And his line is quite interesting, is what he's looking for. This idea I have that he's looking for a grammar of not only drawing and understanding, but of painting. Here we go around again, and again, and again. And there you see it. He doesn't choose which are the standard postcard views. He chooses different views. And as you will see as I go through the rest of my talk, you'll see that I am showing you um, slides which were taken from the website. Um, from Picasso and Flickr, and these are tourist views. Very often, they're not, they're not traditional views. Somebody liked that view, and Cezanne often does the same thing. Now, this is a book, Grecian Sculpture of the 19th century, and that is how, that was a standard view of the time. That's not one that Cezanne would choose. And you see another one. This is a standard view of the time and two official photographs. But if I go back again and show you his views, he shows you very different kinds of views. He's looking for something else. Now we go to the Venus de Milo. He drew the Venus de Milo, and I show you from um, Google Images uh, screenshot. He drew the Venus de Milo at least nine times. And this is our page here at the National Gallery. Here he draws it. Um, from the postcard view. Um, and his drawings, too, incorporate a move around the sculpture. And he's looking for different things. Many of you who are artists can tell me more about one time he's looking for outline or structure, sometimes tone. This one, he, um, he didn't like the, the turn of the head. He must have moved. It's not that he didn't like her face, but that is Cezanne. Nope, that's not right. No, he would write on a, one page. This is a view um, uh, which was taken by a tourist. That's exactly Cezanne's view. Here is my best attempt to get that one. And you can see why if you start concentrating on the body as in the inset, you see the head is in profile, but he'd drawn it as if up above. So I think that's a composite, not what he wanted. This is interesting because this is a press shot of an opening, and that's as as close as I can get to his very unusual view, and the same is true. Now, note what he does with his mark on the right shoulder. There is um, a piece of the marble um, missing, and he just indicates it with that line, like, don't look here, or that's where the shoulder is. I don't know. I'm now going to take you to a sculpture Cezanne knew called as the Roman orator called Germanicus 
in the guise of Mercury. A portrait of somebody could be in the guise of something. Um, we can think of a major figure today as Mercury or as Zeus. He takes his own viewpoint with this, and this is our gallery um, uh, notebook, and this time he has it the other way around. He's holding it maybe here, and he's just looking at the head. With this sculpture, Cezanne and current scholarship were absolutely in agreement. It's a masterpiece in superb condition. Mr. Froner exudes. In execution, this is one of the finest sculptures produced by the Greeks. Now, it's probably of a Roman, but done by a Greek sculptor. It was long in the Louvre, bought by Louis XIV, with the agency of no less a person than the artist Poussin. Here is a close-up of our um, drawing. Note the neck, because you don't see the sternomastoids. So my estimation is he must have done this early in the morning in winter to get almost no light as it comes in. Now I want to show you, I'm loving catalogs, here is the sculpture itself. It has that high surface. This is what it's looked like um, since it's been known in the 17th century. This is what the catalog looks like, and the catalog goes on for several pages. So here's the first, it's all in French. It goes on, it tells you, you know, which parts. The thumb and the index fingers have been reattached. And then here it shows you the, um, the, uh, the um, signing, which says that it's by Cleomenos, the son of Apollodorus, made it. And what I've highlighted here is uh, Mr. Ferner, your French is getting better by the minute. Um, statue in marble, uh, in Paris, of marble from Paris. And there it is, bought by Louis XIV, by the agency of Poussin. It was in the Grand Gallery at Versailles. And then he shows us down below, every single time it was engraved. This is a model of a catalog. Here is another shot. Um, this is mine. Um, I was trying to, uh, trying to get it, but it would, this was late afternoon. Still didn't get it right. Here is a close-up, and you can see what I mean about um, that the neck is, has, shows less of what you see up in the shine. Here we go again, and again, and again, but we don't have a back view. He may have drawn it, we just don't have it. And I want to show you, when I asked you to remember that statue at the right, this is um, called Jason tying his standal, so it's called today, and that is the front view. From Cezanne, we only have this view, an uh, untypical view, and here you see my best attempt to try to show what that viewpoint was, and from it, and we knew where the statue was in the 19th century, we knew where Cezanne stood. I'm gonna end with most of the drawings after um, the antique with this one. This is the Borghese Hermaphrodite, and it's from a very rare view. The standard viewpoints are much like these. That is, you look from above or you look from the side, and as you know, the hermaphrodite from one side looked like a woman, as on this side, but when you came around the front with a head turned away, um, surprise, surprise. Now, an amateur photographer um, took this shot, and this is, and it's a, a rather unusual shot, and this one, posted on Flickr, um, uh, shows the viewpoint that Cezanne said. And once again, we can document exactly where he was standing when he drew it. As I said, what must have been his first impression when he came here? Coming up from Aix, 1861, he walks into the Salle des Carriettes. He sees this. Up until now, he's looked at a few marbles in Aix, some plaster casts, but now all the famous things that were in the school books that he knew. Why did he like it so much? Why did he do it all his life? Well, one of the things were, here were life-size Greek sculptures, um, the most famous names of antiquity, this quiet forest of figures. And there were both men, males and females together, nude and partially draped, countless body types and poses. So many things that would give him so much inspiration. The stillness must have been especially appealing. As the, the great um, Cezanne scholar John Rewald notes, I'm quoting, painting and sculptures replaced for him living models with the added advantage that they didn't move. <laughs> furthermore, Cezanne felt before them, he, more, furthermore, Cezanne never felt before them that paralyzing awkwardness which always seemed to have oppressed him 
when he worked from a nude model. Cezanne continued to copy both paintings, as I've said, and sculptures in the Louvre throughout his life, and this is in deep contrast to other artists of his time. The only evidence besides the sketchbooks that he went every day is from his dealer, Amboise Voulard, who recounts, oh, it'll be a good sitting today. Cezanne had a good day at the Louvre. He goes there every day. Now, of his choices, these were among the Louvre's most celebrated marbles, but there were many that he just walked by. In fact, one of the things is to look at what Cezanne didn't draw. So looking at Froner's thick catalog, nope, didn't do that, that was famous, didn't like that, didn't like that. He had a very particular taste. And um, there was much that held great interest for him, such as the ones I've shown you that he drew many times. Some of the things he didn't draw might be of interest to you, such as the victory of Samothrace, which may be the great object besides the Venus de, um, Venus de Milo or the Mona Lisa that represents a visit to the Louvre today, walked on by. Um, he never drew the Parthenon marbles, and there were even casts of them back in X. Didn't draw those. He didn't draw archaic sculpture, that is the very, um, very stiff early Greek images. And these were quite popular in the public imagination at the time, none of those. They may have inspired his paintings, but we have no drawings of them. I wanted to say one last word about what we know was an X. Unfortunately, many museums from the 19th century and in the 20th and in the early 21st century have gotten rid of casts. It's happened to museums here in Washington, notable examples, and it's happened all over the world. Unfortunately, we have not yet located all of the things that Cezanne drew in X, and my colleagues definitely um, in X have been looking for them. Back to the sketchbook, and now to the Mont-Saint-Vitoire. The Provençal Cezanne, and this is in way of a, um, a two-page um, conclusion. The Provençal Cezanne, deeply knowledgeable about the history and the culture, also painted that. I hope I've helped you to look at this painting in a different way. This is not only the, mon the mount mountain of victory, of saving Rome from invasion, but it records Provence. It is a symbol of Provence. Places and names and people in his everyday world inculcated the history of his Provence. Although we can see him doing lots of kind of drawings, the copying of ancient marbles may have greatly informed his knowledge of the human body, beauty, improving nature, of the grammar of sculpture, and most particularly of the grammar and compositions of Greek and Roman sculpture. I believe this is consistent with his mastery of classical languages as represented by his school prizes and by his continuing to evoke or quote from Virgil and Horace, for example, later in his life. In 1877, Cézanne showed with the other Impressionists at the 1877 exhibition in Paris. And there was a critic there, Georges Rivière, who wrote something that's, I think, really eloquent in light of my thesis. He writes, in his works, Monsieur Cézanne is a Greek of the Belle Epoque. His canvases have the same calm, her sorry, the calm, heroic serenity of classical paintings in terracotta, and the ignoramuses who laugh in front of Cezanne's bathers, for example, remind me of the barbarians criticizing the Parthenon. <laughs> Further on in his view, review, Riviere states, the painter of the bathers belongs to the race of giants. This is another Greek allusion. This is to Plato writing about the Greeks. As I said, Cézanne chose only to draw a certain number of the masterpieces of ancient sculpture in the Louvre, many thought to be by Greek sculptors most admired during the silver, uh, gold and silver ages of Latin literature, the period he knew best. I think his sketches might be seen similar to his exercises in grammar, which later he transformed into unconsciously repeating and being able to narrate 
to compose in Latin. In the case of what he drew from the sculptures, we might call it the development of his aesthetic grammar and later review, revealed in his art. It's often been said that Cezanne painted Arcadia, but he also offered something entirely new to art in the European tradition, one that was born of this education, his training, and his experience. We have to ask which other artists of the period understood as well the indigenous language, the grammars, and the lexicon of Provence, of Greek, of Latin, and of French, of course. Might his deep knowledge of language have been as important to his art as the oft-quoted simple geometric elements, the cylinder, the sphere, and the cone? Although his landscapes are celebrated as new chapters within the tradition of landscape painting, I think we might also see that Cezanne's view of Provence might be also seen as innovative history paintings. The Montagne Sainte-Victoire was a constant reminder of the role old Provence had played in the formation of Rome and Mediterranean culture, and was perhaps a symbol, too, of Cezanne's victory in his new vision of what painting might be. A close look at Cezanne in terms of antiquity show us that the father of modern art was also one of history's most eloquent exponents of the classical tradition, or so I'd like to think. I'll take some questions, a few if you'd like. Don't ask me to recite Horace. <laughs> yes? Where in X are those early um, photographs that you showed of the antiquity, of the, this palace that were the broken? I've been to X for many years, but I've never known what this Roman Oh. Actually, there is a wonderful book. Uh, not only am I I'm working for the Aix-en-Provence Tourist Board, but also for some authors. There is a wonderful book, and it's called, um, I'm not sure exactly of the title, and it's called A Guide to Roman Sites in the South of France. And it um, can take you to those. The ones that are currently on in the city, you can get by emailing the tourist board to show you what's going on right now, such as the expansion of the theater um, and other places. But it's, um, uh, it's a marvelous subject. So the tourist bureau in would. Yes, yeah, yeah. And this book, which you can, I think, look inside if you go, I mean, I'm selling Google books, but anyway, look inside. Yes, any other questions? Yes. Oh, there are some Cezanne specialists in this room who can answer that question. Um, I think that the um, some of the ways are to, and I'm going to use again part of this sociolecture, that is the reading of a larger picture, but also use a word which has to do with the way we speak. Um, and that is, he um, really emphasized his idiolect, that is his own way of um, so it's his own language. Um, some of the things that you read about, you know, like what's so big about Cezanne anyway, that kind of um, thing that you might find on the web is part of this was that he realized that he knew he was painting deep space or deep depth, but he was always aware of the fact that it was a flat surface. And so his ability to also make it, as someone said, like a tapestry, um, that the surface is very important, as well as provoking um, ideas from a particular image, which is of a place, and, and they are views, but that he updates that. Particularly about his individual strokes, someone the other day after, well, Wednesday I gave this talk, and, and a friend of mine said, you know, it's sort of like those early tools where they're each flake that's come off is like a stroke. Did you want to say that his painting is like the flaking of um, a flint? Now, why not? Sounds good. But there is something very much about his mark. And we know perhaps it wasn't true all of his life. It's in evidence in some of his paintings. But Ambrose Vollard, in this article of 1917, says he um, has many paintbrushes. He takes his sable brush, and he dips it in the color, mixes it very carefully, and paints. Then he cleans his brush and he does it again. It's as if he's building up something stroke by stroke, like building a wall. And I think that is something about the process of art 
that he, and as Ted Ref said about the drawings, is that you see both where he's going and how he got there. And that visualization or um, showing you how he got there, the process is quite important. And I'm not sure I answered your question well. You're most welcome. Yes, in the back, there's two. Yes, stripes, horizontal stripes first. Okay. Um, so you talked a lot about how uh, Cezanne's uh, sketches were just the impact of antiquity. So what can an archaeologist learn from looking at Cezanne? Oh, that is such a good question. One of them is um, it's a chance like somebody else's photographs to see it through his eyes. What he saw from the Venus de Milo, like that one shot that he's doing from the back, that is not the way, unless you look uh, cohesively, that you would look at it. Um, another thing is what he chose, what he chose from the landscape, um, that he chose, for example, the Valley of the Arc, um, where there is another battle that took place, or that he would choose particular views. It's interesting to go, why would he paint it, that particular one, or why would he draw it? But I think in terms of the sculpture, it does make you go back. And I was fairly shocked is too strong a word, because we think we're sort of so smarty pants now when we go to see a sculpture that's um, been repaired, came from Rome, went to this place or another, oh, that's modern, that's modern foot. Cezanne was already there. He wasn't drawing the modern additions or repairs. He, um, what he drew was what he believed to be um, there. We have another great, we have a great archaeologist in the audience um, who might be able to answer, what do you think? Well, I now, could you introduce yourself, please? Oh, Shirley Schwartz. Shirley Schwartz. <laughs> At any rate, um, my thought was um, not in connection with this, but his repeated use of contour in his sketches. Right. If you think of and the flat surface that he completely ignores in the interior of the image. Yes. Uh, transfer that to his thinking on painting. And use of a vertical tapestry-like patches yeah. in his painting, and uh, you know, in a sense, he's transferring that same thought, right. thought right. of ignoring the flat interior of the figure, focusing on contour. contour. Now, I think we and, can. And he fills it in just with this stroke that yeah. you mentioned. Yeah. So now, a thing like this is that we understand that as an umbrella pine. And if we, you squint your eyes or your eyesight's bad, you can still see what it is. And that the contour of the mountain, for example, which he works at. So that is, I would agree. Thank you, Shirley. Well, could I thank you for coming? Thank you. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast. 